copy of God's Word this morning, please, and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, as we continue our series called Pondering the Parables. We're taking some time and studying some of these stories that the Lord Jesus Christ told. Uh, Matthew, chapter 13, will be there in just a moment. If you were to travel back in time to January the 6th, 1850, and go to Colchester, England, you would find that there was a hard-hitting blizzard going on that day. And in fact, it kept most worshipers at home. Uh, At the Primitive Methodist Chapel on Artillery Street, only about a dozen people showed up for the service that day. And it became apparent after a while that even the preacher himself was not going to arrive. And so you have a dozen people there. They're assembled for a service in the middle of a blizzard. So an unlettered man, he rose and spoke haltingly from Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 22. Then the crowd dispersed, thinking that the day's service was a loss. What they did not realize was a 15-year-old boy had ducked in the room to escape the snowstorm. And upon hearing that sermon... From that unlettered man, he was saved. He was gloriously brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. And years later, that boy, Charles Spurgeon, known today as the Prince of Preachers. I have his portrait hanging in my study next door. Here's what he said. Think about his beginning uh, in his journey of faith as he ducked into that church on a blizzard-filled morning hearing a simple sermon. Here's what he wrote. Don't hold back. Because you cannot preach in St. Paul's. Be content to talk to one or two in a cottage. You may cook in small pots as well as big ones. Little pigeons carry great messages. Listen, even a little dog can bark at a thief, wake up the master and save the house. Do what you do right thoroughly. Pray over it heartily and leave the result to God. Beloved, that's good counsel. We live in a day where we seem to be enthralled by that which is bigger, that which is fancier, that which is shinier. We highly value those things. We think those things are the best things. In fact, some have gotten to the point in their lives where they despise smallness. And that same thing, that same mentality can infect a church family. Years ago, Kent and Barbara Hughes, they struggled with this. They tell about it in their book called Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. Some of you deacons remember that we studied through that at one of our uh, deacon training time in our our supper. Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. Here's what happened. Early in their ministry, Ken and Barbara Hughes were given a promising church plant in Southern California. And everything seemed to be just right. It was going to just flourish and prosper. But in fact, the work began to flounder. And Kent grew very, very discouraged. Here's what he said. If church attendance was up, I was up. If it was down, so was I. And the numbers had been going down for a long time. But gradually, the Lord began to work in Kent's heart. And he and his wife began to explore some things. And they began to ask these questions and ponder them. Can a man be a success in ministry and pastor a small church? What is failure in ministry? What is success in ministry? And from that experience, which then resulted in a book that's helped many people, can't learn to define ministry in maybe a different way than many define it. 
He said success in ministry is being faithful. Serving others. Loving and trusting God. Praying. Pursuing holiness. Developing a positive attitude. And through that experience, they were able to plunge back into their work with joy and enthusiasm. And he said this, we saw how success was equally possible for those in the most difficult situations, as well as those having vast ministries. May God deliver us from this fascination with bigger and shinier and faster Now, this is not an attack upon larger works. It's not an attack upon larger churches. We thank God for them. They're a blessing to us in so many ways. They bless me in so many ways. But may God deliver us from despising small things or what we might say are small ministries and so-called small churches. I think Joseph Parker was right. He said, I do not believe there are any small churches. I am more and more convinced that we should be very careful what epithets we attach to the term church. I think we learned that when we studied back in Revelation, the opening chapters and the letters to the churches, because God does not always appraise things the way that we appraise them. You say, well, preacher, where is all this coming from? Why all this talk about large ministries and small ministries? What is this all about? Well, I bring it all up today because we're going to talk about a parable that the Lord Jesus told In fact, it's a very small parable in length, just two or three verses, depending on which gospel you choose to read. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke. It's a very small parable. And uh, we're going to take Matthew as our text today. But because it's such a short parable, we're going to read it in Matthew. And then I'm going to read it as well in Mark and Luke. So you can listen or you can follow along in your copy of God's Word. But I'm going to read it first in Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32. The Lord Jesus is speaking and he says in Matthew 13, 31, another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is drawn, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Let me read it to you in Mark, Mark 4, 30 through 32. Then he said to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds of the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up, it becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Then finally, just two verses in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. Then he said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden and it grew and became a large tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Now, beloved, the Lord Jesus did not interpret this parable for us or for the disciples. So we gave the parable and now we have to take and compare scripture with scripture. Look to the Holy Spirit for discernment in what Jesus is talking about here. And it seems very straightforward. And in some regards, it is. In fact, I'll be honest with you. When I was selecting the parables to to preach on, I thought, well, we'll preach on the parable of the mustard seed. It's small. It's simple. But then I was totally surprised when I began to study 
at the varied interpretations that are attached to these simple words. I'll mention a few to you as we go along. But I've got to let you know something up front. At certain points, you really got to put your thinking cap on and stay with me. Because if you doze off, you're going to wake up and say, what's he talking about? Now, some of you are used to doing that every Sunday, so you're okay. But others, you want to plug in right now and stay with it. Because we're going to deep, dive in deep here. The basic meaning of the parable, I believe, is very, very simple. Jesus likens the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. Mustard seed is very small. And something very small turns into something large. There's a small beginning and a wonderful ending. But before we get to the mustard seed, we need to back up and we need to ask the question, what is the kingdom of God? If you're in any of our Sunday school classes this morning from the youth up, any of our adult classes, you study today about the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. A wonderful lesson. If you weren't here, you missed it. So what is the kingdom of God? Because he says, what shall we like in the kingdom of God? How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Well, first of all, what is he talking about? What is the kingdom of God? Well, let me give you a very broad definition from Graham Goldsworthy. And here's how he concisely tells us what the kingdom of God is. And it makes a lot of sense. The kingdom of God involves God's people in God's place under God's rule. It involves God's people in God's place under God's rule. Now, that's a very broad definition. And it's a good definition. But I want to get a little more specific. Now, here's a point. If you're satisfied with that, you can kind of take a nap for the next three or four minutes. And I'll pick you up when I ride back around the block, okay? But for those who want to go just a little bit more specific on this, I want to walk you through um, some of the various concepts of the kingdom of God, okay? There are basically four. If you go and you get a book by Charles Ryrie called Basic Theology, and you look up the kingdom of God, you would read about four various concepts that involve the kingdom of God. And I want to walk you through them real quickly, okay? Number one, there's the universal kingdom. The universal kingdom. And that is the fact that God is the ruler of the whole world. And may I just stop and say right now, amen. God is the ruler of the whole world. In fact, I was praying through Psalm 103 yesterday. And as I was praying through Psalm 103, I came down uh, to verse 19 and I read these words. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. There is no place in all of the world or universe or anything we can imagine where God is not in control. There's the universal kingdom. That's one concept. Then there's the Davidic messianic kingdom. You say, well, preacher, what in the world is that? Well, we go back to the Old Testament, read about a man named David. And David was a king. And David had a kingdom. And by the way, David's kingdom was a kingdom that never ended. You say, wait a minute, preacher, I thought it ended. No, because there's coming a day where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to take up the throne of David. And he's going to rule in the Messianic kingdom. So there's the the Davidic Messianic kingdom. And then there's a third one. There's the spiritual kingdom. You say, preacher, what in the world is that? Well, that's the kingdom of all the believers, all those that are saved. And that includes you and me. Jot this reference down if you're taking notes. Colossians 1.13. Colossians 1.13 says he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son, of the son of his love. 
And so there's the spiritual kingdom. And then there's one more. And really, this hits at the heart of what he's talking about here in Matthew 13. There's the mystery form of the kingdom. There's the mystery form of the kingdom. You say, preacher, what in the world are you talking about? Well, if you're in Matthew 13, back up to verse 11. And in verse 11, we're in the same chapter. The disciples just ask him, why do you speak to the people in parables? And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 11. He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know, watch this, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now, when you see that word mystery, you might think of Agatha Christie. You might think of some uh, late night movie. You might think about a mysterious thing or something weird or spooky or something like that. No, the mystery being talked about here is things that were not previously revealed. Things that were unknown that Jesus is now revealing to them. It was a mystery. And now Jesus is giving them information. And the mystery form of the kingdom begins when Jesus begins teaching about the kingdom and it will end, if you will, at his second coming. In other words, it's the kingdom that encompasses the time between his first coming and his second coming. And so it involves the time we're living in right now. You say, well, what is there about this kingdom? I don't get it. Well, the ruler is God. And he's ruling right now. And he's ruling Over a people upon the earth. And by the way, he rules over all people. Not just those who are saved, but those who do not know him. Those who oppose him. They're relating to him in some way, shape or form in this kingdom. And so we have this mystery form of the kingdom. This time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. In other words, uh, he, he began teaching about the kingdom. When he comes back, he'll actually establish his kingdom and he'll rule and reign on the throne of David and the messianic kingdom. You say, well, preacher, I don't get it. What's the big deal? What does that mean to me now as a Christian? Zuck and Swindoll said believers today are living between the first and second advents of Christ under the provisions of the new covenant. Listen, they're participating in a form of God's kingdom, but are yet awaiting its full consummation when Christ established his uh, reign upon the earth. You say, well, okay, well, how does that relate to me now? Listen to what they say. Understanding God's plan helps us to know God better. Understanding this plan helps us to know God better. We also find encouragement in knowing that God does have a plan. He knows the end from the beginning. All of human history, all of human experience is under his rule and his design. In the face of uncertainty, are you facing any uncertainty today? Do you see any uncertainty in our world? If not, you haven't watched the news lately. You haven't picked up a newspaper. Look at all the uncertainty in our world. In in the midst of all the misfortune, the things that we face, Christians can take confidence and be sure that God is in control. And watch this. As he rules the affairs of the nations. So he rules the affairs of our lives according to his sovereign will. Now, can I just tell you? What an encouragement to know this morning that God is in control. It doesn't matter if Hillary gets in the office. It doesn't matter if Donald gets in the office. It doesn't matter who gets in the office. God is in control. 
Doesn't matter what goes on in our world. Whether you have Brexit, you have the economy collapsing, the economy prospering, whatever's going on, I am rejoicing today in knowing that He is in control. And He rules over all the nations. And He rules over my life. And He rules over your life. And He rules over this church. So the kingdom of God, as we see there are various concepts, He's the universal ruler. We know there's the Davidic messianic aspect of it. There's the spiritual aspect of it where all of us are placed in the kingdom of God. Then there's this mystery form where Jesus is beginning to reveal to his disciples and thus to us what the kingdom is. This time that we're living in in a form of God's kingdom where we're relating to him between his first coming and his second coming. But we're looking forward to that day when he comes and he takes up his rule and reign literally upon the earth. Okay. If you got off about four minutes ago, I'm swinging back by. Get in the van. Let's go on. Now, we know what the kingdom of God is. Now, let's talk about the mustard seed. The mustard seed. How is this kingdom? Now, think about it. We're talking about the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, how can I picture that? I'm going to use a mustard seed. Now, is that what you would have chosen? You, you, cho- you, cho- you would choose a, a mighty mountain or a mountain range or, or something vast. But now he says that's like a mustard seed, a mustard seed. Jesus said that the mustard seed was the least of all seeds or smaller than all the seeds. Now, did you know that some people, when they read that, they jump all over the Bible and say, see, the Bible is full of error. Jesus was wrong. The mustard seed is not actually the smallest of all seeds. He was wrong, but he wasn't wrong. There's a simple answer to that objection. Listen to what um, one writer said. The seed was, in fact, the smallest of the garden seeds known. Orchard seeds, though smaller, were unknown in that part of the world. He's talking to a literal people. And in their world, the smallest seed that they knew about was the mustard seed. Also, smaller than a mustard seed was a proverb. By which the people referred to something unusually small. If you go read in Matthew 17, 20, you'll find it talks about faith as small as a mustard seed. So there's no error here. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. So you have this little seed, the small seed, and it's planted and it grows into what Jesus calls a tree. I began to study about the mustard seed. I'm told that the mustard plant grows and grows to a great height in one season, anywhere from 12 to 15 feet. He says it's a nesting place for the birds of the air. I'm told, as I stated, that it looks more like a bush than a tree, but it's large enough for the birds to hang out in. And so you have this mustard seed, this tiny little seed grows into this big bushy tree that birds can hang out in. Now, that seems pretty simple. Doesn't it? Talk about the birds. Then the birds come and nest in its branches. They rest in its shape. But you'd be amazed how many different interpretations that Bible students put with these birds. Now, I thought it was pretty simple, but they said, no, these, these birds have, have a meaning behind them. In fact, as I studied it, there were three main camps. Now, again, if you want to take a nap right now, I'll pick you up in a moment. But let me give you the three camps that these birds fall in. Camp number one... We would call them dirty birds. Dirty birds. And there are those, I mean, scholars, Bible students, those who love God, love his word. 
They say these birds, they represent evil people. They represent evil. They represent unbelievers. And where do they get that from? Well, they get it from the parable of the sower. You know, we studied the parable of the sower. Same chapter. You find the parable of the sower. You have the birds that came and did what they do with the seed. They snatched it away. And they say these birds, they represent evil people who are living in the midst of the kingdom. And, of course, they'll be dealt with. Well, there's a second camp. And the second camp says, no, these birds, these birds represent the Gentiles. The Gentiles. And they use a lot of Old Testament passages to prove that. They go to Ezekiel 17, 23 and uh, 31, 6 and Daniel 4, 21. And those passages prophesy that the that the um, uh, inclusion of Gentiles in the kingdom, the Gentiles, we're going to be allowed into the kingdom. They say those birds that are nesting in the, the kingdom of God, they represent the Gentiles. Then there's a third camp. The third camp basically says this. What Jesus is saying is basically this. The birds just show that the kingdom is a blessing, just as a tree is a blessing to a bird. And so they say, just as a a bird is blessed by the tree, that's the picture here. They use this Old Testament. In the Old Testament, a tree large enough to support nesting birds was considered prosperous and healthy. Psalm 104, verse 12. There's Ezekiel passages again, that passage in Daniel. And so you say, well, preacher, which is it? Are they dirty birds? Are they Gentiles? Or are they just blessed little birds? I don't know. I lean toward camp three. They're just blessed. But here's what I want. I say all that to say this. Remember when we first started studying parables? We mentioned to you the fact that don't get sidetracked. Don't get so tied up in every little thing of the parable that you miss the main point of the parable. Because in reality, it doesn't matter whether those are dirty birds or Gentile birds or just blessed birds. It doesn't change the main point of the parable. Don't miss the main point. You say, well, preacher, what is the main point of the parable? I believe it's this. The kingdom had a small beginning, but has grown into something much greater. Just as you take a little mustard seed and you plant it in the garden, you plant it in the ground, and that little tiny seed grows into this large, bushy tree, 12 to 15 feet in height, and the birds can come and nest in its branches. Now think about the beginning of Christianity. You have Jesus. And who does he choose to carry on his work. You ever thought about that? He's going to pick 12. Would you have picked the 12 he chose? By the way, we're going to do a study later on this summer. I think it starts August the 5th, Wednesday nights on the 12 disciples. I'd love for you to come get a book as you leave today. Come and join us for that. But but here's the point. He picks these 12 ex-fishermen, ex-tax collector, this this ragtag group of guys. When you look at the 12, who would have predicted that the the whole thing would even get up off the ground? Much less turn the world upside down. We know, of course, this is the work of Almighty God. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Small beginnings. Think about it. Peter, he spent most of the time with his foot in his mouth. All these different guys. But Jesus changed them and used them and God used them. Small beginnings, but look at it now. 
Think about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wasn't it the same? Born to peasant parents. Raised in a carpenter shop. Just a short time of ministry, which ended on the Roman cross. But of course, it didn't end. Why? Because he rose again victorious. And because he lives, you can live. If you come to him in faith. Such small beginnings. But what a wonderful end. The king of kings. And Lord of Lords, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. But think about his life. Who would have predicted? Someone wrote some time ago a piece called One Solitary Life. Maybe you've heard it. If not, listen. If you have, listen again. They wrote here is a man who was born in an obscure village. The child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. This was written some time ago. It says 19 long centuries have come and gone. And today he is a centerpiece of the human race and leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, All the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that have ever sat and all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. Small beginning. Has prospered. It is something glorious. Beloved, can I say to you today, do not despise small beginnings. Why? Because little is much when God is in it. That's an old song. You remember ever singing that? Little is much when God is in it. Haven't sung it in a while. I haven't thought about it in a while. But how true it is, just as the mustard seed reminds us. Have you ever thought about the fact that much of God's work in our world today, listen, much of God's work in our world today goes on unnoticed. It goes on slowly. It goes on personally. It goes on in small places. In quiet places. Often one-on-one. Often unannounced. Unheralded. Unreported. But God is at work. Beloved, let us rejoice today in knowing And understanding that God is not looking for the big and the shiny 
and the flesh. God is looking for faithful men and women, boys and girls, teenagers who will follow him day by day, plodding along faithfully, just plodding along, just plodding along faithfully, doing his kingdom work for his glory. Ponder that. Bigger is not necessarily better. Little is much when God is in it. And God wants to use you and God wants to use me in whatever sphere he's placed us. And whatever relationships we have. And wherever it is he's planted us, he wants us to bloom for him. And prosper. For his honor and his glory. Little is much when God is in it. May we faithfully serve him. Day by day. Week by week, month by month, year by year, remembering the mustard seed. Starts out small, looks insignificant. It's not going to make a big difference, but it's sown and it grows and it's a blessing to so many. Father, I thank you today for this parable. And I thank you, Lord, that um, you're not taken up and captivated by so much of what puts us in awe. You, you weigh things out. You see things as they really are. And Father, I pray that you would help us not to despise, despise small things and not to despise things that seem so insignificant to the world. But to realize that's often where you're at work. And may we faithfully follow you and serve you. And Lord, as we were challenged in our Sunday school classes this morning, may we seek first your kingdom and righteousness. And then leave to you to add all those things. (coughs) Father, I pray if anyone's here today who's never entered into the kingdom of God, they don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I pray right now your Holy Spirit would touch their heart and bring them to faith in Christ. And then there might be some today that they're growing discouraged. Maybe there's a Sunday school teacher and they're wondering will their class ever grow. There's someone who's laboring in a a difficult place at work or somewhere else. Lord, we're in your kingdom. We're serving you. Help us, Lord, to be faithful and be used of you. Would you work in hearts and lives as only you can? We love you and we praise you and we thank you. For this time, we thank you most of all for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning as the altar is open. If you would like to come to faith in Christ today, we'd love to take a Bible and share Christ with you. You want to come and pray. Maybe God has spoken to your heart. I don't know how he may have used this message in your life today. But as he's speaking to your heart, would you come and pray and would you give those things to him? We would invite you to do so. 241 is our closing hymn. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew. That I may love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. The altar is open as we stand and sing. 241, you come as God leads you. 241, breathe on me, breath of God.